First Kings chapter 9. As we arrive at chapter 9, the temple is complete. God's presence has filled the Holy of Holies, and Israel is celebrating, and life is good. But Solomon still doesn't know if God said yes to his prayer in chapter 8. Will Almighty God, who can't be contained by a universe, let alone a building, treat prayers toward the temple as special? Well, Solomon doesn't get it answered till 13 years later. And when God finally answers, there's a stern warning of what will happen if Solomon turns away from the Lord. A warning because Solomon has already begun to backslide. So chapter 9, verse 1 says, And it came to pass, when Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all Solomon's desire, which he was pleased to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time, as he had appeared unto him at Gibeon. Remember, the whole theme of the book of First and Second Kings is all one book originally, it is covenants and character. The writer in exile is writing to the exiles, trying to remind them of God's faithfulness, of God's faithful character, of how He keeps His covenant, and He always will, but how they failed to keep their side. And so here we see now, at this point in time, when it says that He completed building everything that He planned to do, we are now at least into the 24th year of Solomon's reign. At least 13 years have gone by since Solomon's beautiful prayer in chapter 8. So there's a long gap between chapter 8 and chapter 9. During that time, Solomon built his own palace. He completed a bunch of other military projects. But the big question is, what did Solomon do with his relationship with the Lord? When we left him in chapter 8, I mean, things look really, really good. I will not ever doubt the sincerity of Solomon's relationship with the Lord because of what we read up to this point. In chapter 8, he's a man who loves the Lord. He's right where he needs to be spiritually. Even the people recognize this. But beginning with God's answer to Solomon's prayer, he shows us the slippery slope, the writer here, that Solomon was already on. Verse 2 tells us that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared unto him at Gibeon. 1 Kings 3 verse 5 tells us about that time when God appeared to him in Gibeon and tells us it was in a dream. So this appearance is in a dream as well. And the Lord said unto him, verse 3, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. Thirteen years is a long time to give an answer to a request. Like, that's a long time. Like, we recently got a new mattress because our old one was just not working anymore. And we ordered it, and, and it came in, and it was just, it was not firm enough. And they've already shipped us a new one. I couldn't imagine if you had sent in the email or whatever, and you don't get to hear anything back till 13 years later. When we consider that Solomon's request in chapter 8 is very spiritual, it's selfless, thinking about his people, and it's filled with faith, that's a long time for a very good prayer to get answered. It would almost be like Moses, way back in Exodus, crying out, Lord, I beseech you, show me your glory, and then nothing for 13 years. About the same. Sometimes we overcomplicate matters when trying to understand why God hasn't answered our prayers. I mean, we always go to the immediate thing, right? Is there some sin in my life? Have I not done something I should have done? Or maybe I didn't phrase something correctly? Maybe I'm not even saved? All the things that start going through our mind when we've been praying for something and we don't hear anything. If God isn't answering your prayers, you should check to see if there's any obvious sin in your life or if you're disobeying a command that hinders prayer, like 
The Bible talks about if you're not being an understanding husband, it says your prayers are... You should do that. And you should check to make sure that you're praying things that line up with God has revealed about His will in His Word. I mean, if you're not getting an answer to prayer when you're saying, God, can you please give me an opening to rob the bank this week? There's a reason why they're not getting an answer. So you should check. But when you've ruled out those obvious things, if you start to overexamine why God hasn't answered you, when I do that, I think it reveals a legalistic problem in my heart. If I'm frustrated with God because, well, I believe I prayed correctly, (laughs) it shows that I somehow think I've earned a response from God. I think most of my prayer times start with the this phrase, Lord, I know you don't owe me anything. I know you don't owe me anything, but I'm coming to you because I believe you're good and you've made me promises. If you're downcast because, well, you think maybe you haven't done good enough to get a response from God, again, that's a legalistic mentality because it shows that I think Christ's work on the cross isn't good enough to get me to His throne of grace. Don't pray like that. I love Jesus. He doesn't complicate matters. He says, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door shall be open. And you know, if you've been Christian for a while, you know that that word ask is in that kind of present continual type of a verb. You know, ask and keep asking. Knock and keep knocking. Seek and keep seeking. So do that. Just ask and keep asking. Knock and keep knocking. Trust in what Christ did for you and then remain before the Lord on that basis. Just keep going to Him on that basis. There are things I have prayed for for years. And then sometimes you get to that place where your prayers start kind of getting really unsturdy because like it's been so long and you'll pray and then you'll forget to pray a little bit and then you'll pray again because you know it's important. I have watched God be so faithful to things I have prayed for for sometimes decades. The King of Kings knows far better than we do what is most needed and when it is needed. So rest in that knowing that He hears and He sees and He knows and He cares and that He will respond when it is best. So, it's a long wait, 13 years. What's God's answer to Solomon's bold request? Remember, He said, Lord, will you treat this temple as special? I know you can't be contained by this building. I know there's nothing special about this building in and of itself, but will you treat it as special? Will you treat prayers made toward it as special? And the Lord answers with an emphatic, yes. He says in verse 3, I have hallowed this house. It means I've set it apart as special or holy. I have hallowed this house which you have built to put my name there forever. And then he says this, my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. The phrase be there is interesting. It's hard to translate it in English from the Hebrew, but it, it means it will be holy and completely. And then perpetually means all the day. My eyes will be on it wholly and completely every minute of the day. My heart will be toward it always and completely, wholly and completely, all of the day. God's eyes would always be upon the temple and His heart would be toward any prayer towards it. In other words, the answer is, yes, Solomon, I will do as you asked. Isn't God good? Like, He didn't have to do any of that. God doesn't have to do anything for us, but He longs to. He longs to answer bold, selfless prayers, not because we deserve it, but because He loves us and because He is good. When I come to the Lord, it has to be on the basis of believing that He's good and that He's faithful and that He keeps His Word. 
Now, I think it's fascinating that the Lord says that His eyes and His heart will wholly and completely all the day be toward this building because God had said that His eyes would not always be on them in certain situations. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 16 through 18, the Lord said this to Moses, and the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, you shall sleep with your fathers. You're going to die, Moses. And this people, they're going to rise up, and they're going to go a-whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land. They're going to start worshiping other gods and idols. Whither they go to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. And then shall my anger be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them. He says, that's what I'm going to do. It, when they, I know what's going to happen because God knows everything. I know what's going to happen. I know what they're going to do. I know even though I've been good to them, they're going to turn away from me. And when they do, I'm going to hide my face from them and they're going to experience my discipline. That's God's normal response towards Israel's sin. But God says here He won't hide His face with anything at any time as it regards the temple. His eyes and His heart will be toward it in both the good and the bad. One of the most heartbreaking sections of Scripture is when you read the book of Ezekiel, and God keeps giving Ezekiel these visions of what's going on in the temple. Ezekiel at that point's in exile in Babylon, so he's not in his homeland. Ezekiel was taken off captive right about the age when he's going to become a priest and work inside the temple. He never got to experience that. But God gave him a vision of what was going on there, and he shows him all the profane and wicked things that are inside all the evil things that were going on, the shady business deals, the sexual morality, all the yucky stuff that was going on there. God didn't hide His face like He said He would from that. He said, I see it all, the good and the bad. I wonder how God's heart broke. His heart, His eyes, they were always toward it, good or bad, which is why the Lord follows His answer to Solomon with a promise and a warning. Verse 4, God reminds Solomon of future blessings if he'll stay close. He says in verse 4, And if you will walk before me as David your father walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness, to do according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom upon Israel forever. Just like I promised to David your father, saying, There shall not fail you a man upon the throne of Israel. Now, This is not new news to Solomon. This is similar to what God told David regarding his descendants who reigned after him. And this is very similar to what God said to Solomon in his first dream in 1 Kings 3.14. So why is God repeating it again? Well, if you haven't figured it out yet, God is all about reminders. God is all about reminders because our natural tendency is to go spiritually backwards, not forwards. If I wake up and I just say, we're going to go on cruise control today, cruise control for me is backwards. Cruise control is just slowly drifting. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that. It says, therefore, let us take the more earnest heed. Let us pay close attention to our relationship with God, lest at any time we begin to drift away. If we just put it in cruise control, we start drifting away. And that word drifting, it's very similar if you've ever been at the beach, right? And you get in the water, and without even realizing it, all of a sudden you look up and you go, where's the car? Because it's just slowly taking you. You know, it's slowly pulling you away from where you were. And that's what happens to us. So we need reminders, lots of them. So God is all about reminders. But the second reason that God repeats it is because this time He adds something else. He adds an explanation of how David 
He says, walked before me. He says, David, your father walked before me in integrity of heart and in uprightness. What is integrity of heart? The word there just means a full heart. It means a, a heart that is completely devoted. It implies intensity of action. Now, David failed multiple times in his life. But David's failures never happened because David took his relationship with God for granted or because he went after other gods. David's problem was that he, he'd run into situations where he would decide to take matters into his own hands instead of trusting the Lord. Or he let other fleshly passions overwhelm what he knew was best. I think that's important because God isn't demanding that Solomon be perfect. He's requiring Solomon to be loyal. That is one of the things. David is, he said, David's a man after my own heart. He is loyal to me. God wasn't requiring Solomon to be perfect. He was requiring him to be loyal, to never go after other gods. And then secondly, he says, David also walked in uprightness of heart. Uprightness, it just means uh, it's a quality of heart where you conform to a standard. And the standard in this case is God's law, his statutes, his ways, his word. David may have covered up his sin so he wouldn't get caught by people, but he never justified his sin. Never. In fact, he had a really solid grip on his sin. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah to cover it up, he declares after he gets busted, he goes against thee and thee alone have I sinned. Eh, I think Uriah's family might have an issue with that statement. And yet David understands that the, the reality is, is that his his biggest crime was against the Lord. He doesn't make any excuses for what he did. And so, in the same way, God desires that we walk fully committed to Him and we conform our lives to His Word. No excuses. If we blow it, we confess our sin, and then we get back up and go and start walking in the right direction again. That's what God desires from us. He desires that we have no other rivals to Him in our hearts and that we confess our sin rather than justify it or make excuses. The Bible says, He who covers his sin try to make excuses or hide it or justify it, you won't prosper. Whosoever confesses and forsakes his sin shall find mercy. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This beautiful promise to us that he'll forgive us and cleanse us and make us more like Christ. He says, if you do that, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom upon Israel forever beautiful promise to Solomon, and sadly one that was never realized, because next comes a warning. He gives him this beautiful promise, a conditional one, but then he gives him this very heavy warning, verse 6. But if you shall at all turn from following me, you or your children, and you will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel out of the land which I have given to them." And this house, which I have hallowed for my name, will I cast out of my sight. That phrase, at all turn from, it means to turn around or being in the process of turning around. In other words, God's not describing a one-time failure here. It's not Solomon's like, oh, no, I messed up, and now God's going to kick me out. No, 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 no. This is someone who is settled in the process of turning away from God so much that they've arrived at a destination of disobedience. It's not a, a failure, it's a destination of disobedience. And in particularly, what God mentions here is idolatry. Now, when you weigh all this out, like if we sit down and go, you know what? Let's see if Solomon had a good deal. What are God's terms? 
Stay away from idols. How hard should that be? How hard should that be? I mean, Israel doesn't, is not supposed to have idols anywhere in the nation. Maybe as a politician, because he's a king, he's interacting with other people who have different beliefs or whatever. And they're like, hey, I'll trade you my tiki god for this. And you say, no thanks. You're good, right? We ask the question, how hard should it be? But we do it too, don't we? We set our hearts on things other than the Lord to such a degree that they have a bigger priority in our lives. Solomon's words from his prayer in 1 Kings 8.46 are hauntingly true. For there is no man that does not sin. I wish I woke up every day and woke up spiritual. I wish I woke up every day and and everything within me just wanted to do everything God said and, and to treat other people the way I'm supposed to treat them. Every day I wake up selfish (laughs) and I have to deny myself, take up my cross, and decide to follow Jesus. This reality that we all sin, we all fall short, this reality should forever drive out any notion that we're good. (laughs) People are not good. That's why we need a Savior. Now, God isn't asking Solomon for much, and thus a failure will result in serious judgment. If you or your descendants do this, I will cut off the nation of Israel out of the land which I have given them. And this house, I will cast it out of my sight. The word there, cut off, means to banish, exclude from association, to cut down. I'll take them out of the land. I'll cut them off from the land. They won't be in the land anymore. And we saw that. We'll we'll see that happen by the time we get to the end of 2 Kings. And then this temple, which I've hallowed. I've, I've set it apart as special, just like you asked. Well, Solomon, my answer is yes, but it's a conditional yes. He says, and if you guys don't stay loyal to me, but you follow other gods, he goes, not only will I do what I already said I'd do in my law, which is to remove Israel from the promised land, but I will stop treating this temple as special. And when you read the book of Ezekiel and we see all these heartbreaking things that are going on in the temple, it's followed by Ezekiel seeing the Lord's presence leave the temple. And yet what I find wonderful here in this heavy warning is God doesn't say He will remove Israel from the land forever. He also does not say that He will never treat the temple as special again. In fact, that's part of Solomon's answered prayer, that if Israel repents, if they change their mind and they turn back to Him, that He will hear and He will forgive. And so God explains why He's going to discipline them, why He will judge them like this, because it's not designed to just bring Israel back to Him in repentance, but it's designed to bring all men to a place where they turn back to Him in repentance. Look at the end of verse 7. He says, "...and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people." A proverb is just like a a wise saying that's well-known. Garbage in, garbage out. Things like that. It's just a wise saying that's well-known. The story of what I do to you will become a proverb, and they will become a byword. A byword is like a taunt or a ridicule. We have famous sayings like that too. In other words, people around that area will say, all they had to do was stay away from other gods, but they couldn't even do that. Don't be foolish like they were. Now, Put yourself in the shoes of the original readers. You're in exile in Babylon right now when you're reading this. And you're thinking, I hear the Babylonians and the people around us say these words right now. I hear them. We did this to ourselves. 
These words had to cut deep, no less than Peter's words on the day of Pentecost. How many of these exiles had blamed God for their hardships in Babylon? How many had stopped praying and stopped living for Him? And yet these words here squarely place the blame on them. We did this to ourselves. God was even faithful to His promise to do this to us. He was faithful every step of the way. But like Peter's words at Pentecost, the writer is writing them because the words are designed. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit to get the readers to say, what do we need to do to fix this? What do we need to do to fix this? And the answer, of course, is all in chapter 8. They just read it. Repent. Confess your sin. Pray for forgiveness. Ask God to restore, and He will. So I challenge you tonight, don't begrudge a, a brother or a sister in Christ who challenges you when you're in sin, when you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, or they see you interacting with somebody in a way you shouldn't. Don't begrudge that. They are talking to you because they care about you and because they want you to see that God is waiting for you to turn around. So stop justifying your sin or blaming God for the consequences. Own up to it. Come back to His throne of grace because He's waiting with open arms if you'll just repent. We go on to read verse 8, and at this house which is high, everyone that passes by it shall be astonished, and they'll hiss, and they'll say, why has the Lord done this unto this land and to this house? And they shall answer, well, because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt, set them free from slavery, and they have taken hold upon other gods and have worshiped them and served them. That's why the Lord brought upon them all this evil. God doesn't give warnings for no reason, certainly not ones like this, not ones this heavy. So it shouldn't surprise us to find the writer, starting in verse 10, painting a picture that shows us that things aren't exactly as they should be 13 years later in Solomon's life. So verse 10, it says, and it came to pass at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the two houses, the temple, the house of the Lord, and the king's house, his palace. And then it gives us a little aside here. Now, Hiram, the king of Tyre, had furnished Solomon with cedar trees and fir trees and with gold according to all his desire. That then King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. As we look at things being really good in chapter 8, and then this heavy warning comes at the beginning of chapter 9, the question, of course, is why? Well, now we kind of start to understand from the reader that things are not as good as they were 13 years ago for Solomon from a spiritual perspective. Remember how Solomon renewed his alliance with David's alliance with King Hiram, the king of Tyre, the Sidonian king to the northwest? Remember how Hiram was happy to have Solomon as a friend? Well, apparently, Solomon decided to get the better of him on the treaty. The writer originally only mentioned that the deal, the part of it was timber. But now we find out that Solomon took a loan of gold from Hiram for all the building projects. Well, instead of paying off the loan of gold, Solomon decided to defer the payment by giving 20 cities to Hiram as collateral. And it says that he gave him 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Now, Solomon couldn't do this with Israeli cities because an Israelite's inheritance was his land. The king could not take that from them. That was something that every Israelite had, and there were certain rules, like even if you had to sell your land because of debt, at a certain period of time, it would revert right back to the original owner. Their very inheritance was from God, that land. And so as a result, no one could take it from them, which is one of the reasons that even though Israel's in the land in unbelief right now, we should not be trying to take it from them. 
The Lord gave it to them. He gave it to each individual family in Israel had specific land given to them. Not even the king could take it away. So we know that when we're discussing these cities here, these are not Israelite cities. These must have been Canaanite cities that were tributary to him in the northern part of Galilee near the Sidonian land. Now, we already know from an earlier chapter that Solomon had forced the Canaanite population to labor in his building projects. So I can't imagine that these towns were flourishing right now. They were probably impoverished and in disrepair. And so when Hiram sees the cities that Solomon gave to him, he feels swindled. Verse 12, and Hiram came out of Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given them, and they did not please him. Literally in the Hebrew, it means did, he did not consider the deal to be just, didn't consider it to be a straight deal. Hiram thought it was a crooked deal, and he told Solomon so. Verse 13, and he said, what cities are these that you have given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Kabul unto this day. It means good-for-nothing land. And to see just how much Solomon swindled Hiram, the writer tells us how much gold Hiram had loaned him. For Hiram had sent to the king six score talents of gold. The score is 20. Talents about, 120 talents is about 8,000 pounds of gold. How is someone who doesn't believe in the Lord or think the Lord's good or doesn't even understand why the Lord would be better than doing some other religion or following some other God, how are they going to see how great the Lord is when Israel's king is swindling them? In Proverbs 11, God says something very interesting about basically dirty deals in business. Proverbs 11, beginning in verse 1, the Lord says through Solomon, interestingly enough, I'm convinced he wrote this before this chapter. He said, a false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. The integrity of the upright shall guide them, but the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Listen, when you stand before the Lord in judgment, if you don't know him, it doesn't matter how much money you have, he's not going to be bought off. But righteousness, being right with God by our faith in Christ, that delivers from death. The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright shall deliver them, but the transgressors shall be taken in their own naughtiness. When a wicked man dies, his expectation, all his plans will perish, and hope of unjust men perishes. The righteous is delivered out of trouble, and the wicked comes in his place. A hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge shall the just be delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there is shouting. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. These concepts here make it very clear that God looks at the unjust weight, someone who's doing dirty business deals, as an, something he hates. The word abomination there, it means something he detests, something that's disgusting to him. God passionately hates crooked business dealings, never wanting to see it. So I ask you tonight, you know, are you being honest in your business dealings with people, or do you take advantage of them? Do you see business dealings the way that God does, or do you think it's not a big deal? I'm only getting what's my fair share. Well, that's not the only shady thing that Solomon did. Look at verse 15. We're going to see now that Solomon's going to violate a few of God's direct commands that we read about in Deuteronomy 17. Verse 15, 
And this is the reason of the levy. The reason is probably a bad translation there. It means this is how the levy went down. This is the account of the levy. The levy is the forced labor that Solomon used. This is the account of the forced labor which King Solomon raised for to build the house of the Lord, the temple, his own house, the palace. Uh, Milo was an open patio or veranda between his palace and the temple and the wall of Jerusalem, and then three cities, Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. Uh, These were very strategic cities. Hazor uh, was in the north guarding the Hula Valley. Uh, Megiddo guarded the entrance into the Jezreel Valley, and Gezer guarded the entrance into the Judean hills. Joshua destroyed the walls of all these cities when he conquered them 500 years ago, so they would not be fortified cities. At this point, though, Solomon decides to fortify them uh, as kind of key military fortresses. But what's interesting is Gezer didn't need a new wall because of Joshua, though. Gezer had been taken care of by someone else. Look at verse 16. For Pharaoh king of Egypt had gone up and taken Gezer and burnt it with fire and slain the Canaanites that dwelt in the city, and he had given it for a present unto his daughter, Solomon's wife. That's got to be an awkward present. You know, hey, sweetie, I got something I want to show you. I'm like, oh, thanks, daddy. You kind of come over, what is it? The big smoking ruin right here. Happy wedding, sweetie. Did things a little different back then. This does give us a little bit of insight into the likely reason Solomon made an alliance with Egypt, though. Gezer, you see, didn't just guard the entrance into the Gideon hillside. It was the way trade got from Joppa to Jerusalem and the rest of Israel. But it also guarded a second trade route down the west coast of the Promised Land into Egypt. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly why Pharaoh invaded the promised land, but I can't imagine Solomon was excited to see an Egyptian army right on his border. And so, they sat down and talked about it, and they made a treaty. Now, make no bones, this treaty benefited both nations politically and commercially. Everybody won, except for one small problem. An idol-worshiping wife was attached to the treaty. And while the city was technically in Solomon's possession, there were strings attached because it officially belonged to his wife, who's Pharaoh's daughter. Which is why Solomon didn't just fortify it, but the next verse tells us he fortified a bunch of cities around it. Verse 17, and Solomon built Gezer and Beth Horon the Nether and Baalith and Tadmor in the wilderness in the land. Beth Horon and Baalith guard north and south of Gezer. So just in case Pharaoh wanted to go back on his deal, Solomon still had coverage. But it goes on to say in verse 19, and all the cities, he continued building more, all the cities of store that Solomon had, and cities for his chariots, and cities for his horsemen, and that which Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. In other words, everything that he did, he did with this labor force. They were not paid. This was a slave labor force that he raised up. And you might think, well, that's smart, though. It's smart to build these fortresses, and it's smart to you know, build up a cavalry and to build storehouses for your cavalry so you can move troops around. Well, it makes sense militarily and politically to build a strong cavalry. God had actually told Israel not to build a strong cavalry. In Deuteronomy 17, 16, we read about it in our Scripture reading. God makes it very clear. And the day that you get a king, I have a few rules for you. First off, you don't get to pick your king. I do. But then secondly, he says there's some other no-nos. He says in verse 16, but he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. I do not find it a coincidence that Solomon's cavalry projects are mentioned right after the treaty with Egypt. I don't. 
I don't find it a coincidence, especially in light of what God said when he warned him and said, don't build up your cavalry. And by the way, don't go to Egypt to build it up. God said those words to Moses almost 400 years, maybe 500 years before this happened. Because now the Bible's old. It's not relevant. Oh, it's very relevant because <laughs> we don't change. Yes, society around us changes, technology changes, culture changes, but we do not change. We get to places in our life where we think we know best. We just do. And God says these things beforehand because He knows me. He knows you. He knows what I'm capable of, and He knows the damage that will come from these types of decisions. We may logic in our minds about all sorts of different things. We might logic in our minds that there's nothing wrong with two people having sex before they get married. I mean, what, what's the big deal? I mean, a lot of times when I'll talk to folks about this concept, and they'll say, well, I don't understand the problem. And the reason they don't understand the problem is because just looking at the natural, it's not like if you do that, you can all of a sudden see, well, this happened last night, and now all these things are going on. So logically, we think to ourselves, well, there's nothing wrong with it. Or there's nothing wrong with sharing your spouse with another person. Or it's possible for two married men to provide a loving home for children. Why would any of those things be wrong? But whether it makes sense to my logic or not, God warns me for a reason. It's because He knows more than we do. And if God knew better than the person who is proclaimed to be the wisest man in the world, Solomon, then He certainly knows better than me because I'm nowhere near Solomon. That should be enough to get my attention. And so we need to learn to trust the Lord. And when you read about something in His Word, just because maybe the culture says, well, there's clearly nothing wrong with this. I mean, look at this person. They're, they're a good citizen. They, they work hard. You know, they care about people, all these things. How could this be bad? How could this behavior, this action, or this business project they're doing, how could that be bad? And you say, well, because God says so. It's because God says so, not because I can logic it out and I can refute your logic. It's because God knows more than I do. Got a business opened up just nearby. And I was, I was like, what is that? And I looked it up, and I was like, oh, it's, it's basically they, you come in if, for stress relief, and it's, there's an intoxicant in there that, that you partake of that helps you to relax. And I thought to myself, we're, we're so desperate right now as a culture. We're lost. Like, we're grasping for straws anywhere we can. There are times that some of the things we see going on in our culture right now, it reads like a, like a science fiction novel. The desperate measures and the conclusions that people are making in regards to life and, and, and happiness and right and wrong, it's just sometimes it gets kind of weird. But it just, the weirdness, it, it shows you just how desperate we are. We're looking for answers everywhere except the one person who has the answers. There are a lot of times that I come up against stuff, and I'm like, Lord, I don't know what to do. And maybe you have to feel that pressure and that temptation to go, so I'll do this, or I'll make this decision. I don't have to put all that on me. I don't have to look at all my… When we say, okay, well, Will's going to make a decision. 
all right? So, Will, how much information do you have access to? Very little. I've got what's in my own head, maybe in the head of some of the people around me. I might have access to some things that are out in the hyperspace or whatever. I might have access to wikis and things like that, social media. But the truth is, is that do we really know how reliable any of that is? And even if you bumped into a group of people that were the smartest people in the world, would any of them be so bold as to say, well, they know everything about everything? The conclusion will always be, I don't have access to all information. And if I don't have access to all the information, that's how you fail, because you make a decision based on limited info. Better to trust the one who knows everything and who loves us and said, hey, I care about you. I'm going to speak to you and tell you how things work. Now, when we look at all this here in verses 15 through 19, that's a lot of building projects, which means a lot of forced labor. And so verse 20, it says, And all the people that were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which were not of the children of Israel, they were not Israelites, their children that were left after them in the land, whom the children of Israel were not able to utterly destroy, upon those did Solomon levy a tribute of bond service unto this day. But of the children of Israel did Solomon make no bondmen, but they were men of war, and his servants, and his princes, and his captains, and rulers of his chariots, and his horsemen. These were the chief of the officers that were over Solomon's work, 550, which bear rule over the work, people that wrought in the work. Now, this might be a little confusing if you remember we talked earlier in 1 Kings chapter 5 about how he did have a labor force of Israelis. So, is this a contradiction in the Bible? No, it's not a contradiction. The word here used where it says a levy, a tribute of bond service, it's different than the one used in 1 Kings 5.13 for the temporary Israeli labor force. This word of bond service, it describes someone who has made a permanent slave. God's law allowed Israelites to enter indentured servitude for debt purposes, or if they just said, I'm really bad at being on my own, I want to become a permanent bond slave. And, and people did that. Said, every time I'm out on my own, I get in trouble. So, you take care of me, I want to work for you permanently for life. And they could do that. They could do either of those things. But God was not pleased with the forced labor that the kings often use because God's standard is that every person should be paid for their work. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 13 through 19, Jeremiah gives a scathing rebuke to the king of Israel, Judah at the time, because of using this labor force. It says in Jeremiah 22, 13, 22, 13, woe unto him that builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by wrong, that uses his neighbor's service without wages and does not give him for his work. That says, I will build me a wide house and large chambers and cut him out, out windows and it is sealed with cedar and painted with vermilion. Shall you reign because you clothe yourself in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do judgment and justice, and then it was well with him? He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well with him. Was not this to know me, says the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are not but for covetous, for your covetousness, and for to shed innocent blood, and for oppression, and for violence to do it. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or ah, sister. Oh, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or ah, his glory. Instead, he shall be buried with the burial of a donkey, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Woo! 
yeah, I don't think the Lord is too happy about this. That's exactly what happened to Jehoiakim. King Nebuchadnezzar came, killed him, and threw his corpse over the wall. Now, the kings would get around this by saying, well, this work is civil work. It's for the public good. We need these cities. We need these public works. Their service isn't permanent. It's temporary, so we're allowed to do it. Well, while Solomon certainly treated the Israelite labor force better than the Canaanite one, we will see later on in 1 Kings how hard he was on his people and how it broke their hearts. Now, when all these building projects were done, Solomon's unbelieving wife left Jerusalem and moved to Gezer, verse 24. But Pharaoh's daughter came up out of the city of David unto her house, which Solomon had built for her. Then did he build the Milo, the veranda to the temple. And three times in a year did Solomon offer burnt offerings and peace offerings up on the altar, which he built unto the Lord. And he burnt incense upon the altar that was before the Lord, so he finished the house. Deuteronomy 17, 17, 17, he shall not multiply wives. Solomon was married and had children before he became king. He's been a married man. I mean, it's possible his first wife died, but the Bible doesn't seem to indicate that. He'd been a married man for decades before this woman comes along. This relationship is in direct disobedience to God's command for a king. And yet, Solomon's not an idol worshiper yet. He continued to serve the Lord only. I mean, he's in the beginning stages of turning away from the Lord, but he's not full-blown blowout. He's just slowly sliding backwards. And we see another step in verse 26. And King Solomon made a navy of ships in Ezion-Geber, which is beside Eloth, on the shores of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Ezion-Geber was an Edomite city on the northern point of the, point of the Gulf of Aquaba. Uh, Israel took control of it after David defeated the Edomites, and Solomon planned to use it to increase wealth from trade to the east, verse 27. And Hiram sent in the navy his servants, shipmen that had knowledge of the sea, with the servants of Solomon. And they came to Ophir and fetched from thence gold, 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. Solomon later paid the gold back to Hiram, and apparently the two were good at this point because they do a business deal together here. It's even possible that this trade uh, partnership was part of how Hiram would get paid back. It says they came to Ophir. No one knows where this is. Uh, Many believe that it's located on the southeast coast of Africa because that's the region's largest gold-producing area near Israel, but those are just guesses. Solomon's famous mines, you may have heard of them in fiction stories and movies and stuff. They have all sorts of legends about them, but the Bible is completely silent on their location. The Bible has almost nothing to say on them. It's useless to speculate because that's not why the writer mentions it. The writer mentions it because Solomon was pursuing wealth. He got enough gold on this trip, this business venture, to pay Hiram back and have almost three times that left over. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Right after it says, don't multiply wives, it says this. It says, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. That's three commands that Solomon has violated at this point in his reign. What's interesting is as we read it in our Bible, and maybe you've read this section before and you thought, wow, well, I never noticed how Solomon's kind of violating some of these things. Yeah, because the writer doesn't write it like, Solomon's such a bad guy. They almost kind of seem like simple news clips. Oh, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. These violations almost read as minimal. 
But the writer places the accounts right after God's answer and warning because Solomon has already begun sliding in the wrong direction. And that's why they call it backsliding. They don't call it a back blowout. It's called backsliding because we don't usually wake up one day and hate Jesus. We don't usually wake up one day and decide to have an affair. It's called backsliding because we slowly start to drift away without realizing it. And that's the character lesson of this chapter. Remember, Kings is about covenants and character. Well, our character lesson is Solomon today. The temptation is to look at the thing Solomon did and think, well, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, look, he's still worshiping the Lord. Three times a year, he's offering burnt offerings and peace offerings. He's still walking with the Lord. Yes. But if we think of these things as only minor compromises, if we, we don't look at them as something that God hates, when we start to develop that in our own life, that's a spiritual flaw. Because through this mindset, my character becomes weaker. And if my character continues to weaken, I eventually end up at a place I never dreamed, doing things I never dreamed I would justify. Let's not do that. Amen? <laughs> Let's purpose to experience all that God has for us, to stay close to Him and never make any room for compromise with his commands. Let's all stand. Might want to play the lottery. I like finished on time Sunday morning and Sunday evening. So <laughs> something's going on. Lord, we thank you so much that you love us enough to warn us, that you love us enough to repeat things over and over again because we easily forget, we easily stray, Lord. And or maybe there are some tonight who they might even say, Lord, I've I'm, I'm kind of been backsliding. I've, I've, I've been, I'm not doing horrible things, but, but I know I'm not pressing forward. I'm not growing right now. Or Lord, maybe, there, maybe there's something in our life that, that we're kind of teasing with the idea of, of not thinking it's a big deal when your word says, I don't want you doing that. Lord, whatever it might be, or maybe we're not there, and maybe this is just a reminder to not get there. Whatever the case might be, Lord, you know all of our hearts tonight, and you love us. You'd, you've drawn us to this text in your word to hear from your spirit, to, to hear your words and to respond. And so our response tonight, Lord, is Lord, we, we yield to you. We heed the warning. We thank you for the reminder, and our desire is to press in. And so we lay aside any of these compromises, or if we've been backsliding, Lord, we just turn around. And, and, and like Solomon prayed, we'll, we'll confess our sin, and we'll turn to you knowing, Lord, that you're merciful and you love us and you give us grace and you restore. Lord, preserve us. Help us to stay close to you. We choose to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.